Welcome to the Mind Money Spectrum Podcast, where your hosts, Aaron Ogti and Trishal Patel, go beyond traditional finance questions to help you explore how to use your money to achieve the freedom you want in life. In this episode, Aaron and Trishal discuss financial planning strategies for people in their 60s. They explain the logic behind why financial planners recommend delaying Social Security until age 70. They also discuss Roth conversions and ACA subsidies and why a year of no or low taxes is a missed opportunity. Once Social Security and required minimum distributions begin, this additional taxable income makes strategic planning more difficult. Like many things, planning far in advance provides more opportunities for an optimal strategy. And now, on to our conversation. Hi, my name is Aaron Ogti. I'm a financial advisor in the Bay Area, and I'm here with Trisha Patel, a wealth manager on the East Coast. Hey, Aaron, great to be here today, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Great to be here as well. Today, we're going to be talking about some of the specific strategies that we as financial planners use with our clients from approximately age 62 to 72. And the reason I have those specific numbers are we're going to be focusing on things like Social Security, Medicare, required minimum distributions, and Roth conversions. And those topics specifically have specific ages associated with them. So this is not a full-fledged retirement financial plan, but some of the specific elements that we consistently see with our clients that help educate you on strategies that you should be thinking about in advance to prepare for what you're going to do with these different programs and considering these different laws. So Trishel, with that in mind, or anything that you think about for the kind of tax planning and other financial planning strategies in your late 60s that you'd like to start with? The big picture is there are two main phases in the course of one's life when it comes to planning. The first is something we call the accumulation phase where we're trying to get as much assets as possible into the various retirement buckets. And we're trying to invest them sensibly for the long term. But then once you hit this area of, you know, between 60 and 70, you start to transition to something that we call the decumulation phase, meaning you're getting ready to wind down those assets. And what you want to do is ensure that you have your ducks in a row so that you're taking advantage from a tax perspective which bucket you want to target first and you kind of have to coordinate a few things to take as much advantage as possible. So that's where a lot of these rules come into play and what we'll be digging into. And the few main buckets, as Aaron, you've mentioned, are the fact that you have to think about if you have a defined benefit plan, those are typically pensions that might pay out. And if you have a defined contribution plan, how you want to take out money from those. And then you also need to coordinate that or balance that with if you have any annuities lined up or other life insurance policies that may take an effect. And if you have your IRAs, your traditional and your Roth, you want to see how those play out. And then of course, there's the, the Social Security, which 
is something that will kick in and you have some options to consider about when it kicks in. So Aaron, that's the, the big picture. And there's certainly a good amount of details that we'll dig into throughout this episode. So I think that you're right that when it comes to retirement planning, much like we've talked about in the past, the withdrawal rate is going to be one of those big factors. The how much are you taking from the assets that you saved up? And anyone thinking about retirement or working with a financial planner, kind of after that accumulation phase is thinking, how much can I take from my investments to support my lifestyle now without running out of money a couple decades later? Because it's, that's a very realistic concern that if people intuitively understand that, but it's hard to calculate, how much can I take out? Because if I take out too much, I won't have enough if I'm living in my 90s to pay my bills. So the withdrawal rate from investments is a really, really important part of that conversation. And things like defined benefit plans and de- and pensions and annuities, and especially social security are really big components of that. Because if you start taking those, that that applies you have more income now and you can have a lower withdrawal rate that might sustainable. So one of the things that clients ask about pretty consistently is when should I start taking Social Security? And some of the math here applies to defined benefit plans, pensions, and annuities as well. But when we're looking at Social Security specifically, I point out that it's actually not the numbers part. It's actually a logical analysis of why most financial planners recommend delaying Social Security until age 70. When you look at the math, it's pretty consistent that depending on when you start, whether it's age 62, which is the earliest you can take it, your full retirement age, which is usually about 66 or 67, depending on when you were born, or delaying till 70. It's the latest you can delay and still get any benefit. The break-even point in terms of benefits that you can get is usually about age 78 to 83, depending on your specific benefits and when you start and which which two or three you're comparing. So from a just the numbers perspective, it says if you think you will pass away before age 78, you should start Social Security benefits and your retirement benefits specifically as early as possible. Start at 62. If you think that you will live past 83, then you want to wait until age 70 to start taking your benefits. And that way, all the, the greater monthly payment, everything after age 83 is more money that you have received. And that's just looking at how to get the most out of your Social Security benefits. But no one knows when they're going to pass away. You can kind of take into consideration some health aspects, your family history, and look at just life expectancies on actuarial tables, but Social Security Administration has already done this. So they they are already aware that they know about half the population is going to live past a certain age and half is going to pass away sooner. Same way that actuaries do it for pensions and annuity, insurance companies do it for annuities. So 
given that, why am I not recommending half the clients take it early and half take it later? Why is it the case that pretty consistently I recommend delaying Social Security until age 70 to start Social Security benefits? And independent of just health, and so if some clients that they have extremely poor health, we might start earlier. Trishel, do you have an initial guess as to why it's so consistently that we delay until Social Security from a logical perspective, not a numeric perspective? My mind immediately went to the numeric. Um, <laughs> so it may not be exactly what you're looking for. The notion that, that I kind of see is if you delay till 70, you get up to a 32% increase in what you might get if you take it immediately. And that, that's pretty substantial on a go-forward basis. In addition, you, you have the consideration of not only yourself, but you have a spouse who can also receive benefits under certain conditions. And then finally, if you look at what the median life expectancy is, having a 50-50 chance of being above that likely means that you do not want to run out of money if you have the opportunity to be above that 50% threshold. And if you have the ability to delay, meaning you can delay, it's likely you have the income to support you for those few extra years so that you can delay. Those are good, those are good points. And the, the idea here is when we get back to looking at that withdrawal rate, if we're delaying to age 70, exactly what we talked about, that means that we have to take out more from our investments to support our lifestyle before Social Security starts. And this is where clients kind of have trouble understanding. The basic idea comes down to when we look at withdrawal rates, we're planning on you living into your 90s. We're taking, what is the risk that you live to 90 or 95? And we're going to make sure that you don't run out of money before then. If we knew that you were going to pass away, Sooner, yeah, we could support a higher withdrawal rate, but because we don't, we're planning on you living into your 90s. This is pretty consistent across all financial planners, anyone doing any kind of safe withdrawal rate research, and even if just kind of doing it at home, just applying a 4% safe withdrawal rate, that rule of thumb, then you're implying, I want to make sure that I don't run out of money in my 90s. The other part of that assumption is that if you happen to pass away in your late 70s, there's no realistic risk of you running out of money. If you're applying any kind of financial planning strategy or Monte Carlo simulation or safe withdrawal rate research, and again, you're planning, all of those are making assumptions going to your 90s, then you're withdrawing at a safe enough rate that there's no realistic risk of running out of money in your 70s. The only realistic risk of applying these withdrawal rates, of only realistic risk of running out of money is if you happen to live past 95, maybe past 100. So from a retirement financial planning strategy, one of the biggest risks is actually living too long. That instead of living for 30 years, you live for 40 years. And while it's unlikely, that is a realistic risk. And it's kind of, of like, we really hope you do live longer. We don't want you to pass away. So how do we balance this? 
And delaying Social Security to age 70 ends up being one of the best ways to mitigate that risk of living longer. That allows us to plan on a withdrawal rate that you start when you retire in your early or mid-60s that, yes, it'll probably last until 95 or so, but if you happen to live longer than that, the assumptions built into Social Security specifically will help you even more on the back end. That let's say you actually do run out of money at 95. Your liquid assets are gone at 95, which we can probably make some adjustments along the way. We wouldn't actually let that happen. But by delaying to age 70, we're specifically protecting against the risk that you live long enough to potentially run out of money. And now we've maximized your benefit in your late 90s so that if you happen to live that long, we're protected. And if you happen to pass away sooner, while yes, you have not maxed out your Social Security benefits, there's no risk of running out of money. You ha there's no risk of your accumulated investments depleting. So Trisha, do you, do you, does that make sense to you? Do you want to come understand the logic of why we would wait till 70, to age 70 to protect against longevity instead of starting Social Security sooner? does make a lot of sense. And I, the way I, I might have said it briefly is you kind of hope for the best, but plan for the worst. But the interesting thing in this scenario is the worst is if you live long. So that, yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean it's, it is the worst. It's what you would hope for, in fact. <laughs> so, but yeah, it does make a lot of sense. Yes. But when it comes to withdrawal rates and any kind of safe withdrawal research, any financial planning or retirement strategy, the worst case scenario tends to be you live for 40 years, which right, yeah. most clients are okay with that. They're very happy when you say that's the worst case scenario. Exactly. And something we did talk about earlier, the, the kind of back of the napkin math with safe withdrawal rate research is that if you have a million bucks and you withdraw 4%, about 40K, inflation adjusted, that should keep you going for about 30 years um, at a minimum. And if you get that 4% down to 3%, well, then you can extend that amount of years where you can rely upon that million dollars to over double. So basically finding that sweet spot for individuals and making tweaks along the way is something that, that will likely be sensible for individuals in their retirement phase. Yeah, exactly. And so instead of doing a 3% withdrawal rate to protect against living for 40 years, we can actually support a four, usually even on the scale of four and a half percent, maybe even five early on with the idea that it goes back down to about four to 4.2% at age 70 when social security kicks in. That's the combination of withdrawing more, not being too conservative on the withdrawal rate. And you got to get, actually get to spend your money while you're still healthy enough to enjoy it. But the delayed social security will help protect against that longevity risk. And if you happen to live 40 years, we're still okay as well. Right. That makes sense. And the other thing to consider is that when you do retire, typically your expenses 
won't be as high as they are when you're working. They, they can be typically lower. A rule of thumb is they may be around 80% when you retire. And in fact, when you get later into retirement, that might actually go lower than your 80% just because as you age, you may not be taking all those annual trips and you may be more sedentary and you, you just may have some of those lower expenses. Although there, there is that big healthcare expense that, that we probably need to think about, including what people might do for long-term care, but there's strategies for that as well. In general, I don't like that 80% rule of thumb, mostly just because it's too simplistic. Maybe if you're doing this yourself and not hiring a financial advisor, 80% and, a, and using a 4% safe withdrawal rate, those will probably work out okay. I usually find it more effective to track expenses, especially while they're still working, just based on their take-home pay, because things like do they still have a mortgage or not are a big factor, and the mortgage stays level and then drops off completely at some points. Um, you also see, sometimes you actually see increased spending early in retirement, usually on things like travel, things like vacations or life desires that they've pushed off because they didn't have time. You also, over the entire length of retirement, this is a conversation for another podcast, but you see spending is less likely to increase on real inflation-adjusted terms. Most retirement spending does not increase as fast as inflation. So it's actually kind of negative in a negative return in inflation adjusted. So if you're spending $100 a month or $1,000 a month and all your prices to live the exact same lifestyle goes up to $1,003 the next year, most retirees only see their costs go up by about 1,001 to 1,002. So they're actually spending less on inflation adjusted terms. And that actually starts to go down even further in 80s and 90s except for healthcare and healthcare does tend to increase over time, but not as much as the other things are going down. But well, that's a longer conversation of, is that a safe assumption? And it's more complex than just saying, oh, you're going to spend 80% of your pre-retirement spending or pre-retirement income as taxes make a big difference. And that's what I actually want to get into next is looking into if you're delaying Social Security to 70, if you're following your financial planner's advice and you're not earning any income because you're no longer working, what do your taxes look like and what are some opportunities that you might have in front of you? So, Trishel, if you are doing everything I just said, you're waiting until 70 to start Social Security and you don't have any earned income because you're not working. What's the first thing that comes to mind when we talk about tax planning in your late 60s? You have a few other buckets to think about. So we mentioned your defined benefit plan, which may be a pension that you work through and you have the ability to draw upon. And with that, there's payout options there that you may need to consider. And then in addition, you have your defined contribution plan. Now, these are your 401ks that you may have across a few different firms if you've been keeping them wherever they were originally. 
And you have your IRAs to think about, your, your traditional and your Roth. Coordinating these together is something that, that would make sense for this age group because there are ways to make withdrawals even before you're 65, for example, penalty-free. And if you do it properly, you can tap into these resources in an efficient manner by keeping your tax burden low as well. You said 65. Are you talking about taking money out of retirement accounts before 59 and a half? Yeah, 55 and above, you are allowed to access your 401k penalty-free if you were working at the time right before that. Okay, so a couple quick rules that sometimes come into play. For IRAs, normally you can't take money out before 59 and a half. That's an early withdrawal. There's a 10% penalty. An exception is called a Rule 72T. This is a systematic equal periodic payments where if you set up a five-year plan of, I will take out the same amount each year, you can start taking those withdrawals as early as 55. That's from a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA as well. And the idea is that if you retired early- Or a 401k. Or a 401k, but a 401k also has employer-specific plans that will have their own rules as long as they follow certain IRS rules. So depending on the employer, you may or may not be able to take money out from the 401k if you're still working. But if you're not working, so you're officially retired by company rules and you want to take money out of the 401k, just like the IRA, you can use that 72T. So there are ways to take money out before 59 and a half. Is that what you were thinking about in terms of taking money out from retirement accounts early? Yeah. So so basically, you're trying to find a bridge between the time where full social security kicks in and the time where you may want to retire, whether it's around 55 or 59 or 65. Yeah. Yep. So when I specifically mentioned that idea of you retired, but aren't, but social security doesn't start until you're 70, the other thing that usually comes into play, as we talked about, with traditional IRAs and traditional 401ks, you have required minimum distributions at was age 70 and a half, now age 72, just, just recently changed. But this is when you have to start taking money out of your retirement accounts. So I consistently see clients who will be kind of left to their own devices. They would be taking money out of non-qualified investments, so taxable investments. The idea there is that they only pay capital gains if the investments have gone up. And if they haven't gone up, there's actually no tax implication. So they can actually get their tax rate down really, really low. They're not working, so there's no earned income. They haven't started Social Security, so there's no taxable income there. And they're not taking any money out of traditional IRAs or 401ks. So there's no IRA distributions to consider that also affect their taxes. So the first thing that they look at me like, yeah, my taxes might, could even be zero. They could be spending down cash or taxable investments and not actually have any taxable income. Or it could be so low that they're in the bottom tax brackets. And I tend to tell them this is actually not necessarily a bad idea, but it's definitely not optimal. Because what's likely to happen is in their late 60s when they're not taking 
money out of their pre-tax retirement accounts, those accounts are probably still growing. And when they get to age 72 and need to start taking out those RMDs, now we're taking out larger amounts of taxable dollars and we've already started Social Security. So now they're right back in the same tax bracket they were before they retired. This is pretty consistent. So they see a kind of high tax rate depending on their income, drops down really, really low, and then in their 70s drops back up to where it was. And one of the things I try and help clients understand is that if you take advantage of those low tax rate years, maybe pay some taxes intentionally, we can probably save on your taxes from age 70 on. And it's usually doing things like Roth conversions. This is one of the more common strategies I'll use with clients is once you retire, we're still going to use your taxable investments in your cash to support your lifestyle. But now we're going to do Roth conversions to actually pay more taxes while your account balances are low and get a tax rate, a federal tax rate up between nine and 12%. So we don't want to pay zero. We actually want to try and target like a 10% tax on that. And you get two benefits from that. One is all the money that you've converted to a Roth is now going to be tax-free from there on out for the rest of your life and your heirs' lives and your beneficiaries' lives. And we've reduced the balance of your pre-tax retirement accounts so your RMDs are smaller. And when we look at projections, we can usually reduce your taxes by 2 to 3% per year from approximately age 70 on. And so by intentionally paying about 10% in federal taxes for usually about five years in your late 60s, we can save 2 to 3% on your overall tax rate for the following 20 to 30 years. And when I do these projections for most clients, the tax savings ends up being in the dozens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars over a lifetime. Now, lots of caveats and assumptions that this is based on current tax rates. We don't know how investments will grow in the future. We don't know how they'll be taxed in the future. But assuming kind of normal growth on investments and current tax laws, taking advantage of this gap between you stopped working we're waiting till age 70 to start Social Security, and you understand the logical reasons for that because they protect against longevity. Now, instead of paying 0% in taxes, we're going to try and pay a little bit at that very low tax bracket to reduce our future RMDs. Does that make sense, Trisha? It does. And I think it may be worth just digging a little bit into what we just kind of mean with kind of pre-tax and post-tax accounts, just because some of this is important to understand from a perspective of how you want to manage your investments when you're accumulating money as well. So just at a high level, we mentioned the notion of a traditional IRA, and then we also talked about the Roth. And the key difference between the two is just how the taxes work. 
So with a traditional IRA, this is known as a pre-tax contribution. So what that means is when you contribute to a traditional IRA as you're earning money, you can put in about now 6,000 a year, but that, that goes up over time, how much they let you put in. And you get to put that in pre-tax. So what that basically means is you don't have to pay taxes on the income or the contribution that you put in initially. Meaning if you earn $6,000, let's say, and you want to contribute that to your traditional IRA, your marginal tax rate, let's say, is 20%. You would first pay that 20% normally and then you would invest it but if you decide to put it into a traditional ira you won't have to pay that initial 20 percent. you would just put that six thousand in directly in from your paycheck without having to pay any tax and it gets to grow until you retire and then when you get to that retirement age you're allowed to take that money out but now you have to pay that ordinary income tax when you're you know 20 30 years later now, that's a good benefit because you let that money grow. First, you didn't have to pay that initial tax, and then you let that money grow over decades without paying any taxes along the way. If there were any distributions like dividends or small capital gains along the way, but you know the, the downside is now you're in your 70s and when you withdraw, you have to pay this ordinary income tax, whatever that marginal tax rate is. But the good part is, as Aaron just mentioned, there may be years during the, your retirement phase where your income is very low, where you can pull that money out at a low or, or zero tax rate. So it's a good idea to jump on the ability to pull money out at when taxes are low, if you have a traditional IRA. And I just want to balance that against the Roth IRA. And the difference there is, again, back to our example, let's say you earmark $6,000 to go into your Roth. Well, the, the tricky part here is first, you got to pay taxes. You pay your ordinary income taxes when you're young, and that 6000 may drop to something smaller because let's say you're in that 20% tax bracket. Now you pay 20% on that 6000 and whatever is left. Then you put it into your Roth IRA. But the good news here with the Roth is now it can grow over 30 years without still paying any taxes. And the kicker is when you're in retirement age, you can pull that money out without having to pay any tax. So that, that's a pretty nice benefit. And you can see how there may be situations where the traditional IRA makes sense. There may be situations where the Roth IRA makes sense. And just to fill in the blanks on some of the terminology, we mentioned this notion of required minimum distribution. Well, the notion there is for a traditional IRA, the government is gonna require you to take a distribution and you have to take this minimum amount such that you're not keeping that money in this tax deferred account indefinitely because the government wants their money sooner rather than later, they're gonna pose limits on how long you can keep money in that account. However, with the Roth, the benefit is there is no RMD because the government has already collected their money. They collected their tax money the moment that you earned it and before you put it into the, the Roth IRA account. So another benefit of the Roth is you don't have a RMD to worry about, meaning you can let that money grow and grow and grow 
and the government is quite okay with that. Now, there's some some caveats that were that line up with that as well. If these accounts do end up passing to heirs, something that changed is in the past the government did allow an inherited individual to take these RMDs spread them out over the inherited person's lifetime, but that has been shortened to 10 years. So with the SECURE Act that just passed, now that there's a 10-year limit on how long a beneficiary can keep that money before they have to distribute it. So just something to think about. Yeah, I, I agree. When it comes to traditional IRA versus Roth IRA, the very oversimplified response is, you want to pay taxes when your tax rate is lowest. So trying to predict what's your tax rate now versus in the future, like you have a pretty good idea what it is now because you know what your income is now. What your tax rate like in the future could be acts of Congress, could be projecting your personal income. There's a variety of issues there that actually might be a deeper conversation. But yeah, you want to between pre-tax, so traditional IRAs versus Roth IRAs, pay the tax up front or pay the tax at the end. Ideally, whichever one is the tax rate is lowest. That, that's the, the net. Because if your tax rates stay exactly the same, actually the way the math works out, you end up with the same amount after taxes in the long run. So that, that's one of the kind of caveats to understand the difference between Roth and traditional. But these, the Roth just hasn't been around that long. So anyone in their 60s looking at retirement, much more likely that they have those traditional IRAs that were funded through pre-tax 401k contributions. So that's why now the Roth conversions in their late 60s tend to work really well because they, they just don't have Roth balances that large. Most of their retirement dollars are all pre-tax. So the last thing I want to kind of talk about, and this is, is related to some of the past conversations we've had regarding different inflation costs and social programs, is Medicare. And this ends up still being the primary reason why most people don't retire until age 65. This is why the opportunity for tax planning in the late 60s is fairly consistent. 65 is still the most common retirement age. And if they're following financial planner's advice, they'll delay Social Security until age 70 and won't take money out of taxable retirement accounts until RMDs, around was 70, now 72. So that's what creates this five-year window from retirement to seeing earned income jump up. But you don't have to start at 65. There's a couple other options that you might have to get that same coverage in terms of health insurance before 65. So Trisha, I was wondering, do, do you have any kind of quick ideas before I come back of strategies that you've used with clients that were looking in retiring before 65? 
Yeah, on the healthcare side, we, we touched upon this in one of our earlier episodes on healthcare. And the notion is that if you're before 65, you have this window that you're retired, you don't have an employer-sponsored plan that you can lean upon. So what do you do now? And the few high-level things you might think about is you might be able to leverage a cobra plan, meaning just continue with the employer plan for a little bit longer to bridge some of that gap. The 18 months? 18 months, if that's the rule is at that time. And the other thing to consider is you might have to hop on a private insurance plan. Now, the, the breakdown there is if your income is below a certain threshold, 60, 70,000 ish, you may be able to get an ACA plan with a government subsidy. That might be a, a good way to go. The tricky part is if you are not eligible for the subsidy, if you're retired, but you still have an income that is a bit higher from other sources, then it may not make sense to take a non-subsidized ACA plan. So in which case you may want to consider a private insurance plan. Now these private insurance plans, you have to be a little bit careful because these may have certain restrictions for individuals with pre-existing conditions. Whereas with an ACA plan, if you do have a pre-existing condition, then you are eligible for those types of plans. The other thing to think about is they are short-term medical plans, which may help bridge a gap for a couple of years, maybe a year or two. The concern about these short-term medical plans are, first, they have these plans known as fixed indemnity plans, which I, I definitely say you should avoid. and with these plans, what they basically say is they have a fixed amount that they'll pay per specific issue that may come up. And typically that fixed amount could be far less than the trouble you could get into if you actually have that particular issue. So that's why that's one thing to think about. Try not to get a short-term medical plan that's fixed indemnity, avoid that, but get one with just a large cap of let's say a million coverage. And the concern there, though, is what if something bad does happen? Well, the good news is with a short-term plan, you can kind of time it so that it probably lasts for about a year, and then towards the end of the year, if something bad happens, then you can try to jump on an ACA plan when open enrollment begins around November. And at that point, you'll end up paying a higher premium, but if you have a pre-existing condition, because again, something bad happened, at least you'll find a plan that you are eligible for and you're able to take advantage of. So that, that's just something to consider if you want to help bridge that, that five-year gap. The other thing I point out to clients because I'm in California is the Cal Cobra program. So whether if they wanted to retire before 65, whether it's a, uh, they're applying to an ACA, so private insurance, that's probably going to be pretty, pretty expensive for someone in their early 60s. Cobra, you're paying the full amount that your employer was paying already. So the costs are actually kind of comparable. Now we're talking like $1,100 to $1,500 per month. So these are, these are really expensive. And in California, there's a uh, Cal Cobra program, which is, allows you to extend that. What was the federal 18 months? You can extend it another 18 months, so up to 36 months. So it is possible to retire at 62, use COBRA and CalCOBRA to cover your health insurance until when Medicare starts. And 
Now, again, this can be very expensive. And again, spending $15,000 a year on health insurance, it has to be like planned for. Can you afford that premium or do you need to keep working? But like we talked about earlier, if you don't have any earned income and your Social Security is waiting until 70 and you're not taking any taxable income from your retirement accounts, your tax rate actually might be low enough to qualify for the ACA subsidies. And I actually did have a couple of clients going through this where we had to manage their investments to make sure that they, their taxable income was low enough that they qualified for the ACA subsidies. And they had enough money in retirement accounts, but we had to make sure we didn't take anything out. So how is that decision of how do we support their lifestyle while also keeping their taxable income low enough for ACA subsidies until age 65 when Medicare starts and then we can go back up to having a slightly higher tax rate. So it was fairly complex, but the main point is there are options more than just waiting till 65 and waiting till Medicare starts and not everyone's aware of that. So it can be expensive. It requires a lot of planning, but there are possibilities for people to retire when they want to rather than when they feel they can. I think those are all good points. And the other thing I probably want to round off the conversation with is it's around this time you probably want to start thinking about a few things related not only to your retirement, but also to the next generation or your inheritance. Just because if you get your ducks in a row, then things would be a lot smoother, especially if something exogenous or unfortunate were to happen. And what I'm talking about here is, let's say, for example, you own a business. Well, you probably want to start thinking about a succession plan of how to wind down that business or hand it over or sell it off. And when it comes to investments, you also want to think about when you're getting towards an older age, well, it's quite likely, again, you're going to be taking withdrawals and you're going to have some sequence of return risk. That's Mm -hmm. something we've seen lately, especially with a lot of the turbulence we've seen this year with COVID, that if you hit retirement age and you all of a sudden have a big drawdown, well, you, you may need to think about just some flexibility in your plan such that it may make sense to, for example, delay a few big purchases until things settle off a bit or put off. I was going to say put off vacations, but maybe that's not much of a choice right now. But things like that may, may be of concern or it might take higher priority as you're planning. And, yeah. and the other thing to think about is just your estate plan in general. It might be worth just reviewing it and figuring out whether your assets are all tied up how they want it to be and whether your beneficiaries are tied up how they want it to be. And then... The big concern in the past with estates was estate tax, but now that the levels are a lot higher, meaning it's close to 11 million for single, 22 million for a married couple. If you're well below that limit, you may be okay, but if you're above, you'll definitely need to think about extra planning concerns as you approach retirement age. Yeah. That ends up being one of the just big themes is 
there are a lot of moving parts when it comes to investments, taxes, withdrawal rates, estate plan, that the earlier you can start, the more effective you can be in terms of planning. And so it's not just wait until 62 or 65. A lot of the better strategies you start planning for in your mid to late 50s. So even if you're not thinking about when you want to retire, talking to a financial planner about retirement in your 50s is usually ideal. There's usually opportunities that you can start to implement and have a plan for well in advance. And even just starting to make your investments a little more conservative helps mitigate that invest that sequence of return risk. That that's usually what ends up being the big factor is you can implement these if you're ready for them. Some of these just aren't available to you if you don't have a plan in place. The last thing I want to touch upon is just the notion that well, now that you are retiring, you know, maybe the plan is to watch Netflix all day, and, <laughs> but we're quickly realizing that that may not be the best for the long term for anyone. So it, it might be worth having a deeper discussion in terms of life planning goals. What are you thinking mm -hmm. about doing with, with your time? You know, after all, it's not the money that's the most important here. It's your time. So it's a good opportunity to think about these things in terms of where do you see yourself? What might you regret that you haven't done yet? And what, what goals do you have that aren't necessarily monetary, but, but in terms of what would bring you value to your life and what would provide you with solace? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I like that. I, I like, I think that, again, as we go through the shelter in place, it, it really keeps coming back to lifestyle is more important than the numbers the end, that that's what I keep thinking about is all the other things just don't phase me. And again, maybe just because I'm a financial advisor, but I, I don't see, I don't get any stress from investments or taxes or markets or acts of Congress. Like they just roll right off my back. It's all the other parts of my life that are changed dramatically and trying to cope with them that cause more stress to me. So I think we want to wrap up there. That sounds good, Aaron. It's just good to understand that there are things that can be done and with effective planning, we can go a long way with reducing some of these hurdles. Okay. Well, thank you very much for the conversation, Trishel. I, I look forward to talking to you again next week. Sounds good, Aaron. And thanks, everybody, for listening. If you like what you heard, do spread the word. And talk to you later, Aaron. Bye. Bye. We appreciate you joining us today for this episode of the Mind Money Spectrum podcast. Be sure to visit mindmoneyspectrum.com to access the entire library of episodes. Remember, it's not black and white, but the wide spectrum of gray area where you get to pursue the freedoms you want in life. Opinions voiced in this material are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance referenced is historical as no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested in directly. Have a nice day.